down and bow down before your word. We ask that you would humble our hearts, that we would confess that it's only as you have revealed yourself to us that we can make sense of life and have hope for the future. And so would you encourage us and strengthen us by your word tonight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Better watch out. Your days are numbered. He resigned when he saw the handwriting on the wall. Right? Both phrases that come from our chapter tonight. And I think maybe we take for granted how much the Bible has shaped the English language, just like it shaped the German language through Luther's translation. In fact, there were French missionaries when I was in seminary, got to talk with one, who, is, who were asked, they were starting a seminary, and they were asked by one of their local colleges, would you come and teach the Bible as literature to our students? Because we're having trouble understanding the metaphors of the early European authors, because it was just everywhere. Even Star Trek, if you, you, uh, the early Star Trek movies quote scripture. It's all over the place, right? And you see that here as well. Well, tonight's passage shows the head of gold, Babylon, for the dream from chapter 2, in a free fall. The king, if you can call him that, is unhinged. He's full of false bravado as a, as a massive enemy army camps outside his walls, and he goes so far as to personally spit in the face of the true God, whose king will never end. And in the meantime, Daniel has been relegated to a sideshow, um, small post, living as a, in a life of faithful exile. And this tells us now how we can live a different angle on being in exile. Here's how you can live tonight. Present God's case in a free fall kingdom. When it looks like the world around you is coming apart, how should you live? There's many ways you should live. But one of them is, as a faithful exile, as one who is standing on the rock, someone who is ready to present God's case. Here's how we're going to go through our sermon tonight. First, we're going to look at the context. and that, While we're historical context, we're going to ask a question, just digging a little bit. Is Daniel actually historical? And then we're going to see how the kingdom and the king are in free fall. They are plummeting. And then talk about how to present God's case. Is Daniel historical? Well, let's look at the first four verses. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, and wood. Now, we'll, we'll get to the action in a second here, but there is, a, there is a big question when it comes to the book of Daniel. When you look at the background, when was Daniel written? Was it written by Daniel and maybe the bulk of it written by Daniel and then a scribe kind of edited and, and, and kind of smoothed it out a little bit later? Um, or, or was it written more towards the 200s, 150s in the time of the Maccabean period where the Jews were under intense pressure and um, this was, Daniel was not history, but a model Jew who served as inspiration for those who were undergoing persecution. 
And there has been a constant sniping at the what we call the earlier view that Daniel wrote the book or the majority of it. There's been constant sniping uh, from scholarship because if Daniel's if Daniel wrote it, then that means the prophecies are eerily accurate, and that would not be good for the naturalist home team, right? So it makes it's just much more comfortable for someone who doesn't believe in a supernatural God but decides they want to study the Bible as a human book to say, no, no, this was written after the fact, and so all these prophecies that come true are really just reports in the form of prophecy. Well, I doubt that many of you had this question tonight, is Daniel history as you're arriving to church? So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but we can actually cover a little bit of this question as we explore the background. So that's what I want to do right now. Let's do a very quick sweep of history again, um, really starting at Daniel 1. Remember, Daniel was part of that first Babylonian exile in 605 B.C., Uh, Jerusalem was finally plundered and destroyed in 586, almost 20 years later, 20 years later. Uh, But Daniel was the first part of the those who were deported. And then if you fast forward to chapter four, a little beyond chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the big player in the first four chapters, he dies in 562 B.C. So that's over 40 years after Daniel was exiled. And Nebuchadnezzar was followed by his son. He has a couple names, but in the Bible he's called Evil Merodach. Evil Merodach only lived, reigned for two years, and then he was assassinated by a rival, Neragleister. Neragleister ruled for four years, and then he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who was only on the phone for a few months before he was knocked off. And at last, one of the group that killed Labashi Marduk, named Nabonidus, became king. And he rules from 556 to 539 when the Persians conquer the Babylonian Empire. So who's this Belshazzar guy? And why is he called the son of Nebuchadnezzar? The second question is fairly easy to explain. The ESV actually does it in the notes. Son can just mean, you know, successor. That's, That's really what's going on there. But up to the 1800s, there were no records of King Belshazzar at all. So in the very beginning, as people were starting to criticize and try to undermine the historicity of Scripture, they would say, well, this is, again, another example of biblical inaccuracy, not, you know, just, it's it's a book of errors made by man. But then we began to discover and decipher more of the cuneiform tablets, tablets around Babylon, and we found out at least, in a general sense, what happened. Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, who was the ruler, that last ruler for about 15 years. And what happened is Nabonidus seemed to be an ardent follower of the moon god Sin. Now, of course, he was a polytheist. He believed in all kinds of gods. But he seemed to have an unhealthy predilection towards Sin. And he was so enamored with this moon god that he angered the religious leaders of the Babylonian center who said that Marduk should have uh, pride of place. And so, to seems like to placate the religious elite, Nabonidus left the capital and went off someplace else, and his son, Belshazzar, 
ruled as co-regent. And so that's why he's called king. He's ruling in Babylon as the king, although his father is technically also king. And this might also explain the cryptic phrase later on that Belshazzar says, whoever interprets this shall be made third ruler in the land. Because his father, him, whoever does it, right? So here again, see how we have to be very patient with Scripture. God has revealed things in ways that sometimes we just don't have access to. And then as time goes on, you find out, oh, yeah, Daniel knew what he was talking about. This is how it works. Now, we will see next week that there are some mysteries that we still can't explain. We don't know exactly who Darius the Mede is. And yet, you can have confidence that, that God is revealing to you true history through his prophets. I will say this, Daniel is historical, but he is not modern history. He would not get passing grades today. He has no sense of proportion. Almost 70 years has passed since Daniel 1, and 23 years has passed from Daniel 4 to Daniel 5. There's plenty of gaps. Where's Daniel? What about Nebuchadnezzar? Did he die? Obviously he did, but what happened? But there are reasons for Daniel doing that. He's shaping the history actually to show you now that you have a kingdom in free fall. In fact, he gives you this jerky history just to show you how precarious four world powers are. Think about what it would, think about the message. If you were just reading this straight through, you're reading about Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter five, it's gone. No mention of the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. He's dead. He's, he's an afterthought. Even the most powerful kings fade. And now you see his kingdom is about to fade. And in fact, Daniel chooses to, when he resumes his story, almost 23 years later, he chooses the very night where the kingdom will fall. There was a Persian army right outside the gates of Babylon. They had already defeated the Babylonians in combat outside the city, and the army had withdrawn into the city. And so this regent king, Belshazzar, he holds a banquet. We don't know exactly why he did. We do know that they, the Babylonians, realized that they were on the prowl and had massive stockpiles. And if you remember from the morning last week, Babylonian, Babylon boasted huge city walls, which they thought were impregnable. So perhaps he felt secure. And this, this way of holding a banquet is his way of saying, bring it on. <laughs> You're out there in your tents, right, on army rations. We're feasting like kings. And by the way, we can do this for a long time. But then he goes a step further. In his self-confidence, or his, his attempt to boost his self-confidence, he spits in Yahweh's face, the God of Israel. And he, he gets out the sacred vessels from Jerusalem. Now this is insanity. This is something not, that not even Nebuchadnezzar did. What was he thinking? Was he trying to prove something? That maybe he was, you know, he was better than Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, even a pagan would say, this is a bad idea. Why would you provoke any god? My, um, someone who has impacted me in evangelism, discipleship, Randy talks about how, you know, if someone, he asks someone today, hey, you know, may I pray for you? He says, almost everyone will say, yes, yes, please pray for me. But if they say, you know, I don't really believe in prayer, he says, okay, okay, well then, you won't mind if I pray for utter misery in your life, do you? And they say, no, well, well you know, actually, let's not do that, right? Because even if they don't believe in prayer, they, <laughs> Just in case it's true, they don't really want to go that route. Well, even the pagans knew there's a God out there. We probably shouldn't be you know, wiping our feet 
on his sacred vessels. But no, he does that. And, and to make matters worse, they praise the God of dead idols. And I think what they're doing here is boasting in their wealth and their city walls when they praise the God of gold and silver and stone and iron and their armor. Right? This is, this is what will save us. The gods are there. And it's at that point that God interrupts. Look at verses 5 and 6. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. You can see the insecurity of this king. He goes from at least a portrayal of confident feasting to abject terror. And the book of Daniel plays a, a trick here that um, we might not actually think is, is very couth. Um, if you can use the word, I don't know, maybe just use the word uncouth. We use, But they, they play a little trick here. They say, literally, the knots of the king's loins were loosened. I could think of some uh, colorful military phrases that would describe that in today's language. None of the wise men can help them, as we'll see. And in fact, as we'll read in a second, his mother comes in and she says, you know, there's this, there's this Daniel and he's the one who can loosen your knot, solve your puzzle. It's the same words. And, and what you see here is that the Bible is actually using potty language to poke fun at the other helplessness of idols. Now, kids, it's not generally a good idea to use potty language. And I actually like the rule. I heard this from, my cousin, that the time to use potty language is in the bathroom, right? So that's a good place to keep it. But that is what goes on here. In fact, I'll just, I'll just read verses 10 down from, from the queen. So the queen, because of the words of the king and the lords, came into the banquet. This is the queen mother, by the way. It's not his wife. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in the kingdom and who is the spirit of the holy gods. And the day of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Now, Daniel is called, and it's clear that there's no love lost between these two men. Let's just read on a little bit more. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this interpretation and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I think you can kind of hear perhaps the contempt in his voice. 
Perhaps he didn't want to call Daniel because he, had, he didn't like him. Maybe he had relegated him out of the inner circle of the court when he wanted a change in regime. And so he was one of Nebuchadnezzar's top advisors. So he pushed him out. Maybe he felt like it was weakness to go back there. But whatever it is, he's not even uh, referring to him by his Babylonian name. You're that, you know, you're that exile, Daniel. Well, uh, what does Daniel say? Then Daniel answers and says before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all your ways you have not honored. You can hear there's, there's no respect, there's no titles as he would for pre- previous King Nebuchadnezzar as we'll contra- contrast a little bit later. It's very different from the way he talked to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of oncoming destruction or humbling. Instead, all he does is give him a history lesson and then he, re- then he interprets it. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, Tekel and Parson. This is what the, this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Daniel says, here's the interpretation for you. You've been numbered You've been waited, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom will be divided. In other words, die, die, die. There's your interpretation for you, O king. In fact, the, um, the number, they're all numbers of, of weight or of currency. So many we would get the word mina from. You're, you're familiar with perhaps the biblical coin of a mina. Um, tekel is the Aramaic word, which is very similar to shekel. And, and then Parson means divided, but it also sounds a lot like Persians. And so the king gives the rewards, and then he's killed. 
Once again, I want to listen, I want to read a short part of the battle report from Herodias, a Greek historian, and, and see how this matches up with Daniel. Cyrus, and I do, just to show my hands, I do believe Darius is another name for Cyrus. I think that's the best way to understand it, although we're not certain. Uh, Cyrus advanced against Babylon, but the Babylonians, having taken the field, awaited his coming, and when he had advanced near the city, the Babylonians gave battle, and after being defeated, were shut up in the city. Cyrus diverted the river by the canal. When this took place, the Persians, who were appointed to that purpose, close to the stream of the river, when had now subsided to about the middle of a man's thigh, entered Babylon by this passage. If, however, the Babylonians had been aware of it beforehand, or had known what Cyrus was about, they would not have suffered the Persians to enter the city, but would have utterly destroyed them. It is related by the people who inhabited this city that by great re- reason of its great extent, when those who were at the extremities were taken, those of the Babylonians who inhabited the center knew nothing of its capture, for it happened to be a festival. But they were dancing at the time and enjoying themselves till they received certain information of the truth. And here you see, corroborated through history, how the Lord brings judgment on, on Belshazzar's foolish idolatry. Humanly speaking, had he been alert and vigilant, the Persians would not have been able to capture Babylon. If he had been a good king out there, probably fighting in the first place, but then fortifying everything, humbling himself enough to, to take this enemy seriously, Babylon would not have fallen. But God in his judgment brought Babylon into a free fall. And I want you to see that here already, God is working out the interpretation of chapter 2, where the stone smashes the statue and it's crumbling to dust. The gold is already faded away into obscurity. And Babylon, in the sense of an earthly kingdom, has yet to rise again. Perhaps it will arise in some way in Revelation, or unless that is just a total figurative picture of the world forces. But Babylon is now gone. And we need to remember that as, as impressive as kingdoms are, they always crumble. All rulers fall. I remember growing up, I can date myself quite well because when I was in 7th or 8th grade was when the Persian Gulf War happened. I remember that. I was just old enough to really at least remember the tracers flying, the bombs over Baghdad, uh, some of our pilots being shot down. I remember the, that, that war. And then 15 years later, I was over there as part of the forces. And then um, at, at the 15-year mark, I was there as a civilian. And I remember the celebratory fire when Saddam Hussein was executed. We thought we were taking income. And there were all kinds of towers. I was in a place where there were radios. We're, we're under fire. And they said, no, no, Saddam's been killed. The, the one who reared his head 15 years ago, who, who tortured and killed many people, did many horrific things, He's gone. There's never anyone that we can ultimately fear who is in power. The worst they can do is kill us. Uh, Now, what does this this look like in our own lives? I I know that for me right now, there's just a little bit going on. Um, It's just one of those periods where a lot's coming together. I also have some military stuff on my plate. And I, I remember as we were getting ready for our closing, there was just some questions that were 
for a second, was call, calling the closing into question for our house. And I remember, you know, you don't want that to happen, and it wouldn't have been financially ruinous, but it would have been inconvenient, and it wouldn't have been financially beneficial. And I, I remember reading this passage, just thinking, if, if God is the one who really, you know, crumbles the kingdoms of Babylon, certainly he has in control the question of when we will settle our house. There's just a great peace in that. So not just in the huge picture, but also the, the questions and problems of our own lives. We can take comfort in God's sovereignty. It can be distressing to see your world in freefall, and in some ways our society really is in moral, social, and I, I probably sooner or later economic freefall. There will probably be another recession, perhaps even worse. And it's never comfortable to be in that freefall because you might be there when it hits ground zero, and that could hurt. It can, just humanly speaking. And we should be good stewards and plan, but we can once again look here and see how this exile navigates through the changing of world powers and see how God is in control. So how do you live as a pagan in a kingdom freefall? Well, what Daniel says here is you, you present God's case. He comes to this pagan king and tells him the truth of who God is and who he, that he rules and that he needs to repent. And there must be something in our church that says repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We must echo Jesus' words. And as the chaos whirls around us today, we must be people that in some way call those around us to repentance. That's hard today. If, if you talk about sin and judgment, you are labeled as someone who is toler- intolerant and unloving. I, I can just, I can tell, I can feel my soldiers pull back from me in connection as I'm preaching and I talk about sin. This morning in our youth Sunday school class, we contrasted um, the Westboro Baptists and an inclusive community that just says God is love and, and kind of the extremes of how we can, we can go to one end or the other and, and just look at God as one uh, corrupted thing, whether he is he's transcendent or he's, he's imminent. And as I was looking at that with Elizabeth, she said, you know, they're both, they're both wrong. They both have little nuggets of God's truth, but they're both wrong. But the problem is, is that if you disagree with anyone today, you are labeled with the Westboro Baptists, right? That's how people look at you. And so it's hard. It can be very tempting just to want to win friends with acts of love and, and hope that people will just see the beauty of Jesus and just, you know, point them to him without any teaching or confrontation. But if that's all we do, as important as it is, that's a false gospel. That's actually cruel. It's telling people that they're okay with God when they're not. So we want to learn from Daniel here. What, how should we present God's case? We'll say, first of all, um, where we should do it, and, and then how that looks. So first of all, it's not here, but clearly in, in the church's preaching and our proclamation Sunday mornings. We have to present God's case. We need to be calling people to repent. If people don't come into our church week after week and they don't hear that call to repent, then something's wrong. We've lost the salt of the earth. And this is something where it's important to, again, call out the popular teachers today. People, pastors, who are much more interested in numbers and bringing people into their community that just want to hear a nice message. We'll talk about God's love, about his grace, but without talking about his call for repentance. I am, I'm perfectly fine with calling Andy Stanley out again because there's a man who just has a huge amount of influence, preaches wonderful sermons from a, a technical point of view. And when it's time to say, and here's what you should do about it, 
just says, you know, I want what's best for you. Go and live good lives. I had a chaplain who was on my last deployment, and he came in after just two wonderful chaplains. They, these, were, these first chaplains were Baptist brothers. They were on fire for the Lord. You could just tell they were hungry for God's word, and it came through in their preaching. Although we had some, you know, some major secondary disagreements, I loved sitting under their preaching. And these next two chaplains came in, and, and they were orthodox from what I could tell. They just seemed a little off. And, and at that point, I was going through seminary, and so I think I was, I was starting to be a little bit more discerning. And, you know, I finally thought, I, I never have once heard these chaplains in preaching or Bible study talk about sin or judgment. And so I asked them, I said, chaplains, I, I, being a little brash at that point, you know, I just, uh, seminary, I said, chaplains, why don't you talk about hell? And they said, well, you know, I, they boiled down to, well, we believe we can serve more people by just talking about other things, right? Catch more flies with honey type of thing. Okay. That's a problem. We, uh, and so as a church, public preaching, there must be a call to repent, as well with, of course, the free offer of the gospel. Okay, well, that's, that's the pastors in the session, and, and you're part of that church body, and so you're part of that ministry, but what about daily life? Does Daniel say anything about where you live? I do believe here, as you see him talk to Nebuchadnezzar, there is a place where God expects his people to have a prophetic voice in the public. Daniel was not a rabbi teaching in the synagogue where if the Chaldeans wanted to come in and observe all the kosher laws, they could hear about God. He was a public official who was a servant of God. I think this tells you that there is a time and place to present God's case in the public square. And yet, notice here that Daniel just doesn't walk in with a sign, you know, repent or you know, the end is near. He does wait for God to create an opening. At this point, Daniel's obscure. He doesn't even have the ear of the king. He waits for God to send a dream or vision, and it's through that that God uses Daniel to reveal his will. You, you don't see Daniel setting up a, a lecture and preaching to the court. Um, by the way, street preaching, if done well, is not a bad thing. That's more of a, a church general thing. But what you do see is when Daniel gets this chance, he doesn't hold back, does he? In fact, he calls the king to task. You, you had the example of your predecessor, and you ignored it. You're doubling down. You're doing worse. Right? So, what does this say to us? Um, what we should be doing is praying for God to work openings so that we can present his case. God, will you work a way for me to share the gospel? Right? I have some dear neighbors. They're, they're becoming very good friends to us. And, and every time that we mention anything that is, you know, we're just poking and anything that's even just somewhat religious, Christian, um, even just generally religious, it seems like the, con- the conversation falters and it just, they don't go anywhere. And so we're waiting. I'm not pushing the case right now. Uh, have yet to talk about serious gospel issues. But I'm praying, Lord, would you create an opening? We're there. We're, we're loving them. We're caring for them. Right Now, there will be a day that if they're getting close to death, it's, hey, we need to talk about this. They're a little older. But my point is, my first words coming when we knocked on their door first was not repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But we're praying, Lord, would you open that opportunity? And, and what you see then is, how should we do this? What I think you learned from Daniel is that you should have a pleading compassion for the questioning. For most people, your default mode, when the Lord opens that door, is completing, pleading compassion. 
Notice that there's a contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream in chapter 4, and Daniel says, Oh, king, this is not going to go well for you. May this be for your enemies, king. I don't want this to happen to you. And, oh, king, if you would just do this, if you would repent, maybe God will change his, his dream. Maybe if you change your ways, God you know, turn to God. He's, he is, he has, there's a respectful rebuke, but there is a pleading there. He's rooting for the king. He wants the king to receive God's love. The Old Testament doesn't really talk about salvation. We don't know where Nebuchadnezzar was, finally, at the end of chapter 4, though he certainly humbled himself in some way. That's a good blueprint for how we care and how we would present the gospel to other people. And yet, for Belshazzar, he has no time of day there is almost a disdain, and there is stark condemnation for this man who is close to our almost, it seems, satisfaction. That might be reading too much. I don't know. It's very strong. So when you, what can you learn here? When someone asks you an honest question, you should be compassionate. As I was looking for clips of the Westboro Church, there was, there was a, a young gay woman who was having a, a, trying to have a dialogue with this very self-righteous, arrogant, so-called Christian and she said, why, why do you have to pick on the gay people? You know, why, why is it just all about gays? And, and she, she just came back in, in total, she, she, could have, she could have actually talked about the differences of sin, and I, I actually think the way they're going about it is very wrong, but she just came back full of condemnation, interrupting her, jamming her, because finally the young woman was frustrated and left. Um, but our basic default should be like Jesus, weeping over Jerusalem, pleading, turn, turn. You know, sometimes the best way to do this is to talk about how the gospel has changed you, right? When, when we're most aware of how God is working in our lives, it is the easiest to plead with others to receive the same grace. It guards us against the self-righteous condemnation that you see in religious hypocrites. And yet there is a time, this is hard, but there is a time when someone has heard the gospel and they understand what they're talking about in utter hard-heartedness, blaspheme God. And there is a time to call that out and to say, as you stand right now, you have no hope in eternity. You're going to stand before a righteous judge and he will crush you. Think about that. There is a time for that seriousness. Daniel pulls no punches with, Nebuchadne- with, with Belshazzar. He says, you are done. You are sawing the limb off from underneath your very feet. Your days are numbered and beware. It's a hard one. This is something that we do not do often. But you need to prayerfully think about it. God, there's a time. There might be a time where I need to talk to a loved one that way. This week, ask yourself, what part am I to play in presenting God's case? Some of it is just that we, we pray for the preaching of God's word. And you invite people to church and we pray that the Lord would bring Christians who, who don't know God's word and they would hear the gospel through the, the pastors that you have called. That's a big part of it. Pray for that ministry. But also, ask God where you are. Would you you send openings? Would you send signs? Would you send situations in people's lives to open cracks that I could present God's case to them? So here we are on this side of the cross. In an age which pushes for conformity, all the while pulling out the stops of morality. And even in this freefall, may God give us the grace to present his case. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for both the example